Friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Isaiah chapter 35, we'll be looking at the whole chapter together. Isaiah chapter 35, and if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, uh, feel free to use the one in the pew back in front of you, and you can find that on page 595. Isaiah 35. And last week we looked at Isaiah 11, and we saw that we are to hope in a righteous person, and we also to look for a promise of reversal. And as the book of Isaiah unfolds, the actual steps to get to that reversal begin to be delineated in the book of Isaiah. That he says that there's going to be a great reversal and we need to be looking for this righteous person and this is how it's going to get laid out. This is how it's going to happen. And that's the case here in Isaiah 35. And yet the steps seem to be embedded in the fabric of this story. And what I want to do is I want to draw them out this morning and highlight them so that we might see how we are to move very practically towards that promise of reversal. That we aren't just supposed to sit back and relax. That's what we saw last week is that waiting, scripturally speaking, waiting is not just kind of drumming your fingers on the desk and waiting for things to happen. It's not like waiting in a doctor's office to have your name called, but that it is about working. It is about trimming the wicks of your life and getting oil in your lamps and being prepared that He will indeed come as a thief in the night and we ought to have our hearts prepared as opposed to like, whoa, I didn't know you were coming. I, I wasn't ready. No, but Jesus Himself says, no, be ready. And the season of Advent, and that's why we light these candles, by the way. It's, a, it's, it's hearkening back to Jesus' own admonition that you are the light of the world, but then also that you are to be prepared and to live in accord with being the light of the world. And so... What we see here, and I think it's really uh, important for you to understand that chapter 35 comes between chapters 34 and 36, in case you didn't notice. And so what, what 34 is about is about the impending judgment on all the nations, the nations who have come against Israel, against God's people, that they will be smited. They will be taken care of. And that this judgment that is coming on the nations is the same judgment that is coming upon Israel because they presumed upon the kindness of God. And so the Lord says this punishment is going to come on Israel and then it's going to come on Assyria and then it's going to come upon Babylon and all those who would seek to hurt God's people. But there's a future judgment that's coming. You can see this in, in verse 8 of chapter 34. And if you're new to the Bible, the, I'll, be note, I'll be mentioning verses or the small numbers in Scripture and the big number is the chapter. But in, in chapter 34, verse 8, we, we see, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, that, that all of the trouble that Israel experienced would be accounted for. And that the Lord would be giving recompense and vengeance against those who presumed upon God's favor, namely Assyria and Babylon. But this also comes upon God's people too. That the Lord says, I will be king of all the nations as we sang of the Jews. And then seen again in the season of Epiphany. And then chapter 36, you hear this great promise of chapter 34. And then chapter 36 says, yeah, but the reality of the situation is that the king of Assyria has sent his general of the armies, the Rabshakeh, and you can read this in chapters 36 through 39, that this is the reality that Israel finds itself in. As it looks out of the walls of Jerusalem, it sees that, well, I thought God was going to bring judgment on Assyria and on Babylon, but 
what we see right now is that Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, is about ready to take us over. It doesn't seem that that really is going to happen. And so our chapter, chapter 35, teaches and models for us, as it did for Israel, how we are to live in between the reality of what we face and the impending judgment and the promise of that reversal. So how are we to live right now? And that's why God promises in the midst of the judgment that is to come, that is foretold, and the judgment that is happening right now, that in the midst of that, God gives a beautiful promise. And this particular chapter, chapter 35, highlights the call for each of us to not merely be spectators but to be participants in what God is doing by locking our arms and realizing that God is inviting you even this morning, if you call yourself a Christian, that God is every day inviting you to take part in, in what He's doing in the world. To lock arms with Him as opposed to it, Him looking and wondering if you're going to get your stuff together. It's, it's more of a matter of saying, Lord, where are you at work and how can I be a participant in what you're inviting me into? So if you're taking notes, uh, and, if you're, and if anybody asks you at lunch what was the sermon about, the sermon is quite literally this, is the redeemed run after righteousness. And each one of those words is, of course, chosen specifically, because uh, I'm saying them. But redeemed, the redeemed, those who are redeemed by God, run after righteousness. Not only do they run after righteousness, but they run in righteousness. And we're going to see that through three points this morning. First point is this, is blossoming sorrow. Blossoming sorrow. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And yes, I put an accent on shall. This is something that is happening in the future. It will happen. And some of you may know, uh, if you know me for any amount of time, that I am a, a novice horticulturalist. I love plants and I kill a lot of plants, but I still love them and they may or may not love me, but I love plants and while the fern uh, is my favorite plant, uh, it is the, particularly the hyacinth, if you all know, does anybody know what a hyacinth is? They're not real popular, but a hyacinth and then the crocus are my favorite plants in the springtime because they are the ones who sprout the first and they, and they are some of the most like delicate plants. Like if you see a crocus, it's a, it's a low-lying flower that you think, wow, I hope somebody doesn't step on that because you could easily step on it. It's something that's really, really fragile. And it could be easily destroyed. And the same thing with the hyacinth. You've got this beautiful stem of, on a flower and you could easily just put your, take your finger and, and break it. And the Lord says that that is our fragile faith and that is our promise though is that spring is waking up and when we see the crocus blossoming, we know that our hope is coming up through the snow, through death, even though it seems destitute. We don't get a lot of snow here in Greenville, but I do remember many times in, when we lived in Minneapolis that you would see this snow that would, that would be on the ground until like July. And you would see, though, in the early springtime, you'd see these crocus just 
coming up and in the midst of this barren landscape of snow, you would see this little bit of hope sprout up from the ground. And that is the picture of what God is saying, that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. See, notice the the contrast here. The wilderness is a place of destitution, of chaos, and of death. A place of judgment. The desert is a place where only the hardiest vegetation, and it's, it's, when you think of desert here in our country, you think of cacti. Right? I think that's probably the only plant that you'll ever see grow out in the middle of Arizona, unless they have an irrigation system that's going. Um, but the, only the, the most robust type of vegetation can survive, and it's definitely not the place where a flower as tender as a crocus can thrive. But, as we saw last week, the twig, the branch from the stump of Jesse, though it looks hopeless, the Lord can cause to grow out of the dry ground the most vibrant and delicate of plants. And like we heard just a moment ago from James chapter 5, did you, did you notice it? He says, like the farmer who is patient, wait for your redemption. Wait for the Lord to cause to sprout up within your own heart the righteousness that you are cultivating in your own heart. So I want you to latch on to that imagery of a farmer being patient for this crop to come in. Because that farmer also has to water. That farmer also has to prepare. He has to do something to get his land ready. Because the Lord ultimately provides the growth, as Paul says in another place, He says, the Lord produces the growth, but we water and we plant and we plow and we do all of this preparation in our own hearts, especially during Advent. And Advent provides us an opportunity to slow it down and to take a real stock of our life and to to till the hard ground of our hearts that can be so easily hardened over the year. And so Advent, which is the the Christian New Year, is a time for us to reevaluate and to think, okay, what is the soil of my life like how ought i to get to work so to speak so during the advent season is a reminder that where our souls are dry and so let me just ask you is your soul dry this morning is your spiritual life crusty is it if you if you look at your own life you're like oh, i really don't feel like praying i don't feel like reading my bible i don't feel like being nice <laughs> Especially the person who cut me off, right? And, and maybe your life seems a little chaotic right now as you are being invited to different things or not being invited, and that provides a whole other slurry of problems, right? You're like, oh, nobody likes me. Maybe, maybe you feel that way during this Advent season. But Advent is a reminder that if you simply ask your Heavenly Father who knows what you need before you even ask, who loves you, who cares for you, who indeed will give you what you ask because He is a good Father and He will and He can restore joy and vibrancy in your life. And and so instead of saying, what do I need to do? There are certain things that you can do. Right? But, But ultimately... And with finality, it's through asking God to produce joy and vibrancy. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You're asking. Look at, look at verse 2 again. He says, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. This is God's initiative. This is God's work in your life. The glory 
that God wants for Himself can be given to you if you ask. And so when we slow down long enough to notice that we're frazzled, when we slow down long enough to realize that we aren't who we want to be, that there is a discrepancy between what we believe and how we live, you have to slow it down. That we're maybe not enjoying the abundant life that Jesus promised. If we can be honest with ourselves and with God just long enough to just slow down and say, Lord, what is the true circumstance? What's the soil pH in my life? But you have to slow down. You can't run from one thing to the next and say, what do I need to do next? You say, I need to slow down first and evaluate where I am truly and be honest. And if you want some help, ask somebody who you trust and who you love and say, hey, what do you, how, how do you encounter me? How do you, how, how am I? And let them be honest with you. And that's how you can also get a relevant test of how your soil is. Like, well, no, actually, you're kind of mean. You've been really mean the past month or two. Maybe, maybe you need to ask somebody that you trust and, and, and then also just even get alone with God and say, Lord, I really don't want to talk to you. Just be honest. Lord, I really don't want to hear from you. I don't want to read your word. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation as opposed to just trying to buckle down and do it more. If you can slow down long enough not only to evaluate, but then to mouth the words. The Lord hears these prayers and He will work on your behalf. Maybe you can simply say, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, Restore to me the life that the locusts have eaten up. The, the locusts have nibbled on the edges of my life and they are about to overtake me. Lord, restore the life that the locusts have stolen from me. Lord, cause streams to sprout up in the desert of my heart. And we wait. And we wait for God to do the work that only He can do, but our waiting is a preparation. Waiting is a preparation. It's a carving out the riverbed of our hearts so that when the rains finally do come, there is a place carved out in our lives and in our hearts where the streams can run. A place for the water to collect. And we see this in our second point. So not only is there a blossoming sorrow, even though there is darkness and sadness and barrenness, God promises that there will sprout up life. But then secondly, we see that we are to be about carving out riverbeds in our heart. And this is the second point, is that there has to be a better strength. That's point number two, better strength. And you see this in verses three through four. So let's read that together. He says, after this, this glory shall be restored in your life when you seek his face, he then says, verse three, strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. I think it's very telling in Scripture when we are told that the Lord will do something and then immediately follows is a command to do something. Don't you find that interesting? That the, We see this indicative that the Lord is going to do something. He's going to make something true in your life. Therefore, you do something. Strengthen. Instead of saying, hey, just wait for the Lord to show up. No, he says, strengthen your hands. And then the very last part of that is, he will come and save you. It's the same paradigm when John the Baptist shows up in the desert. 
He knows that there's a Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And what does he say? He could say, hey, just wait for him. He's coming. He's saying that the Lamb is coming, so just, just hold tight. Keep living like you're living. You know, he says, no, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sin of the world is coming, so prepare the way of the Lord. Stop trifling with sin. Stop playing games with God. Stop presuming upon his kindness as though you don't have to do anything. But he says, take your life and prepare the highway of your heart. This is the refrain throughout the prophets, and that's what we see here in Isaiah as well. And this is the mantle that John the Baptist is picking up himself. He's saying, the Lord is coming, therefore get ready. So where your hands have grown feeble in not doing the works of righteousness, God has called you to do. Strengthen them by being about His work instead of making excuses and saying, I don't have enough time to love my neighbor. I don't have enough time to go knock on their door and ask them how I can help them. I don't have enough time or nor do I want to. Instead of being okay with that, instead of having weak hands, he says, do the work. How do you get stronger? You do the work. You show up to the gym and you, you know, slowly add more weight. Maybe you start with the bar. This is the bench press. I'm not going to lay down. I'm not going to do it. But you start with a little bit of weight, right? You, you don't say, man, I can't do, you know, 700 pounds of bench press like Matt can. Right? You don't start there. No, excuse me. I definitely don't do that. But, uh, you don't start there, right? You start with the bar and you say, okay, I'm going to build up my resistance and I'm going to grow. And he says, that's how you do it. You start with the bar and then you add weight. Maybe you start by praying for your neighbor. Are you praying for your neighbor? Are you praying for those you work with? The person that gets on your ever-loving nerve? Are you praying for them first? That's what we're told to do. He says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Where your knees have grown feeble through fear and lack of prayer, he says, put on some knee pads and pray. Instead of saying, man, it really hurts when I, when I, when I get on my knees to pray. It's like, that's okay. He says, how do you strengthen them? How do you make them firm? You put some knee pads on and you get to prayer. It's not a coincidence that the, these are the very same verbs. This, I, I did a quick search. But these, these verbs, strengthen and make firm, are the same exact phrasing that is given to Joshua. He says, right before they go into the promised land, the Lord says to him, He says, be strong and courageous or firm be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that i swore to their fathers to give them only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all that the law moses my servant commanded you don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go be strong and courageous and do the work don't turn to the right or to the left. And Christian this morning, don't turn to the right or to the left. Stop making excuses for your sin. Stop making excuses for your lack of time. Be strong and courageous. There's an expectation that as you believe God's promise of salvation, you will be drawn into, third point, a bigger story. And that's really what, because 
what is going to inspire you? I was listening to a, a, a podcast earlier this week, and what really is going to change you is not beating yourself up and saying, man, I, I got to get my stuff together. Now, what's going to change you is telling yourself a different story. And I think scripturally, what we see here is telling yourself a bigger story, the better story of what God has invited you to be a participant in. And that's our third point, the bigger story, verses 5 through 10. Let's look at that real quick. See, the program of salvation couldn't be any clearer. It follows the same structure we just saw in our previous two points, that God does something, you do something. See, God shows up and works. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, then... After you strengthen your hands, after the Lord says He will come and save you, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the desert and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Isn't that fascinating that the Lord says, I am going to, I'm going to bring life to the desert, strengthen your hands, then the water will come to the desert. He wants you to be a participant, and this is not just saying, if you don't get your stuff together, Jesus ain't coming back. No, it's not what it's about. It's about the Lord is coming back, period. The question is, is whether you are going to welcome Him and say, yes. I've been waiting for your day. I've been preparing a meal for you. I've been preparing my house. I've been preparing all of this. My little you know, geopolitical spot in this world, I have been preparing for you, Jesus, to come and to make residence here. That's the picture we're supposed to be getting, that the Lord says, there is a huge story that I want you to be a player in and not just be an observant in. And this is what John the Baptist, when his faith was flagging, Jesus pointed to this reality, didn't he? And we just heard it in Matthew 11. He says, John, John says, should we, are, are you the one that's to come or should we wait for another? He says, no, you tell John what you've seen and what you've heard, that the blind receive their sight, that the lame leap for joy, that this promise that is foretold in Isaiah 35 is coming to fruition right now. And this is just a foretaste of a greater reality when all lame people will leave for joy. All blind people will see. All deaf will hear. All those who have hard hearts will have their hearts rekindled. See, Jesus didn't just open the eyes of blind people like a magician. See, consider this for your own faith. Consider this for your own faith. And, and I mentioned this just a moment ago that Jesus, this cataclysmic event that God, the infinite God, one in three persons became a babe born in a, in a manger, in a, in a barn. The infinite one became finite, put on flesh for you and for me. That should astound us. And I think so often we hear it and we're like, oh, well, that's, that's really cool. It's like, no, consider that just for a moment that God Himself walked the same earth that you walk. Think about all the healings that Jesus perform and still performs even today and we can take a cue from John the Baptist can't we because John didn't get to experience the freedom from jail but he rejoiced with others who rejoiced who were freed from prison who were given sight because John was able to say wow 
All of my longings are coming true, and I can see it in technicolor in the lives of other people, and I may not get to experience it. In fact, John didn't get to experience it, right? He died. He died in a jail, but he was able to rejoice with those who were able to enjoy that salvation. And that's, I think, what we are, we're called to do in a lot of ways is like look at Scripture and say, wow, Jesus really did heal people. I may not experience healing right now, but I can rejoice with others who have experienced that healing and know that, that he has come to free captives from prison. Because John knew that one day his head would be put back on his shoulders. John knew that one day, and it may not be in this life, but in the life to come, that he would be restored to full health. And that's a lot of times what God is calling us to do, is to have exercise a greater faith than what I get to experience right now. Your life may not be what you want it to be, and it may have a lot of suffering, and that's why God promises you that even as a crocus in the middle of the desert, life can spring forth to what he can do in your life and you may feel dry this morning the lord says i can cause it to happen look forward to that day and so god shows up and does his work so to speak but part of the glory that we are called to participate in this great story comes a little later because this is an invitation to us we walk on the path that we have prepared for him so look at verses 8 through 10 so God shows up, and then again we hear this, this invitation to you and me. He says, and the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass, pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. See, the image of highways in Scripture are ones of prosperity. This is where merchants would travel up and down the highways. And this is why Jerusalem itself became an epicenter for market Right, is that you would have this halfway point on this Silk Road trail that would go through Jordan and so forth. And they were places of prosperity, but highways, scripturally, are also places of doing battle and doing war. And see, the highway that we are called to walk in, the way of holiness, is both of these things. It's a place of prosperity that what we have in God has already been given to us, that we have an inheritance in Jesus Christ because He has done everything that we could not do. And His righteousness is given to us. And because that righteousness has been given to us, we can then do battle with unrighteousness in our own hearts and then in the world around us. We can look at the invitation God calls us to and we can stand with our mouths open and wait and wonder or we can get to walking. See, one of the greatest stories that has had reverberations even today, today is Dante's trilogy of hell, purgatory, and paradise. And if you're interested, you can talk more with, with Chad. He's taught the class how many times? Like three, four times now? So if you're interested, and I would encourage you first to read it, um, but then secondly, if you want to find out more about it, I, I'd encourage you to talk to Chad. But a, a particular note in Dante's trilogy of, of uh, hell, purgatory, and then paradise is that the faithful, this is in the, the beginning of the, the second book, Purgatory, is that the faithful 
those who have been redeemed by God are standing at Mount Purgatory and they look up this huge mountain they're like, oh my goodness, this thing is steep. It's arduous. Ah. And they just stand there and they wait. and they, they, they begin to linger at the bottom. And they're like, I don't even know if we can start this. And they start talking amongst themselves. What is sin? Or you start having all these dialogues about, hmm, maybe, maybe wrath is this. Maybe envy is this. And instead of doing battle with sin, they just stand there at the bottom of the mountain. And they, as, as Dante says, he, he says, they stood there musing and in deep thought. Just thinking about things. I think I'm going to do this. And we can spend more time musing and not moving, can't we? And then we hear Dante's guide say to him, he says, How is this, ye tardy spirits? What negligence detains you loitering here? So the question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for to do battle with the sin that you know is in your life and that you've been told myriad of times that you need to stop being X, Y, or Z? We're called as God's people to cultivate virtue as a field of flowers. But we have to first clear the ground, clear the field of the rocks and the thorns and the thistles in our own heart. The, the church has historically called these things uh, capital virtues and vices. We've talked about the seven uh, deadly sins or something, the seven capital vices. And, and this is what Dante sees at these seven levels of Mount Purgatory to, as, the, as we ascend this mountain. If you want the, 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 the Protestant equivalent, just as Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, ascending the mountain. Okay, so if the, the Mount Purgatory freaks you out a little bit, just think about a mountain, and we are called to ascend this mountain and continue to do battle with sin. And you have this basically these, these seven sins of vainglory, envy, wrath, sloth, coveting, gluttony, and lust. And basically, all of these are love gone sideways. And so the solution in Dante's way of explaining it is this, is that instead of just waiting and musing and wandering and worrying, he says this, run to the mountain to cast off those scales that from your eyes the sight of God concealed. That God is going to remove the scales from your eyes as you pursue holiness and righteousness in your own life. As Rebecca DeYoung, she's written this great book that Ashley started and she shared several excerpts. It's called Glittering Vices. And it's actually a really healthy thing to say, what are the vices in my life? And the church for centuries has been using these seven categories to say, okay, where am I succumbing to vanity? Where am I succumbing to wrath? It's actually really good to name the sins and say, I'm going to do battle with these sins. So I'd, I'd recommend this book to you, Glittering Vices by Rebecca DeYoung. And she says this. She says, sanctification requires effort, not earning. Living as a Christian takes discipline and practice, and such activities are not replacing Christ's saving work, but they are rather establishing and enabling that work. That if Jesus has redeemed you, that in doing battle with sin, you're actually enabling the work of Jesus in your life. Instead of saying, I believe, you're like, no, I really believe. And I'm going to walk in this way of holiness. And in other words, another way to say this is that movement keeps moss from growing on your heart. And this is what 
Dante goes on to say, he said, he thus said to me, such is this steep ascent. The climb is ever difficult at first, but more a man proceeds up this mountain, less evil grows in his heart. That's the beauty of it all, is that what you know to do, do it by the power of the Spirit who resides in you. If you are redeemed, run after righteousness. If you are redeemed, run in righteousness as God has named these things. And so I've got four um, practical things to help with you, just real quick. This Advent, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to do the following. First of all, I would love for you to plant a crocus in your yard. Go get a bulb over at a nursery. And I'm, on, I'm, I'm being like truthful about this. Like, go get a crocus bulb and plant it somewhere in your yard and so that every time you feel like your faith is wavering and flagging and, and the soil of your ground is, is hard and dry, every spring is a reminder that the Lord can cause to sprout up in those dry places a crocus. So that's one point. Second, Buy a succulent plant that grows in the desert and keep it in your window as a promise. So every time you see that succulent plant, you're like, Lord, if you can cause this to grow in the desert, Lord, you can do that every single day. Lord, have mercy on me. Cause to sprout it within my own dry heart vegetation. Third, crucify one vice Identify one of those vices that I listed out that you want to proactively weed out in your life, in the pathway of your life. Pick one and say, I want to do battle with vainglory because I am always concerned about what people think about me. I want people to recognize my good works. I want people to really say, man, Matt, you're really awesome and, and admire me, right? Just do battle with one of those sins. Maybe get this book and, and work through it slowly and say, what is one vice during this Advent season? We only got two more weeks of Advent left. What is one that you can proactively weed out in the pathway of your life instead of being complacent? Say, man, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm always going to be struggling with this. The Lord says, you don't have to. You don't have to. And then fourthly, choose one virtue to cultivate in your life. So crucify one vice and cultivate one virtue. And you can pick humility, kindness, Patience, diligence, charity, temperance, chastity. All of these virtues have been gifted to you by God's church to consider in your own life and say, Lord, I want to cultivate in my own heart charity. How do I do that? How can I proactively do that? If you need help, I'm happy to help you I, um, to be able to think through some very practical ways to do that. So plant a crocus, buy a sucker, kill a sin, cultivate a virtue. Those are my admonitions to you during this Advent season. That you, It doesn't, in the, the remaining two weeks that we have, that you don't just kind of let it pass, but that you say, Lord, I want to be proactively waiting for you and help me prepare my heart. And this is not about earning anything from God, any less than it is when John the Baptist was telling people to earn their salvation. He didn't say that, did he? He said, prepare your hearts because the Savior is coming. And in the same way, prepare your heart, Christian, for our Savior is coming. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have promised us to cause to sprout within the wilderness, within the desert, 
a crocus and a stream to flow. And we pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see that and that we would, that we would take that seriously and that we would crucify a vice that we have been cradling in our hearts and that you would help us to cultivate a virtue in our lives. And all of this comes from the power of your Spirit. That we're not earning anything, but we are indeed exercising effort in our sanctification because You empower us. You are the One who empowers us to do this work. And we pray that You would remind us yet again that You are the One who causes the growth in our lives. But yes, indeed, Father, that we are called to participate with You in cultivating our own hearts and preparing the way of holiness in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.